What up, what up? Jimmy Murray here with Frank Padalano, and we are the Cash Flow Kings. The Cash Flow Kings podcast talks about money, finance, mindset, and investing with an emphasis on cash flowing real estate. Hi, and welcome to the Cash Flow Kings podcast, episode four Jimmy's Story. My name is Frank Padalano, and with Jimmy Murray, we're here to help you crush it and make money. Guys, so Frank and I were talking about what episode five and what the next couple of episodes should be. And even though we've given you an elevator pitch in terms of what we've done and what we've been able to accomplish, we felt like it's probably worthwhile to take a deep dive to tell you both of our stories. So fortunately enough, Frank told me that my story would be number one. So I'm up today. I'm on the hot seat. But all these stories that I tell you, I don't feel that I've been able to accomplish that much, although I am... I'm happy with what I've been able to accomplish. So these stories aren't meant to impress you. They're meant to impress on you that you can accomplish some level of success and hopefully a higher level of success from us sharing these stories with you. Don't completely listen to Jimmy. I am very proud of everything he's accomplished so far. Um, we're going to have like a little test here today. You know, We'll have like a little quiz. We're going to have a question here and a question there and go from that. I like it. I like it. So where it all began, and I think I'm going to kind of throw Frank for a loop on this one, but I can remember in sixth grade, my language arts teacher had had us write a letter to ourselves for when we would graduate high school. So I wrote this letter in sixth grade. I had a bunch of questions. And one of the things that really struck me as I'm a senior in high school, I'm getting ready to go to college. One of the major questions was, are you investing? Are you investing in real estate? Are you investing in stocks? So even in my head, in sixth grade, I'm thinking about being an investor. What am I investing in? And I just, that really kind of struck a chord with me, right? So from there, you know, go to college. And the crazy thing about college is that I never took a single real estate course. I was a finance major. I made fun of my friends for taking real estate courses. I told them it was the easy way out. So I was focused on investing in stocks in the stock market, and I still invest in the stock market today. I think it's a viable vehicle. However, my main focus is real estate. But even with that, I can remember on a warm spring day, walking through Victorian Village in Columbus, Ohio, checking out some of the open houses, trying to figure out, hey, if I'm gonna stay out in Ohio where I went to school, is there an opportunity for me to buy some real estate? Am I gonna flip? Am I gonna own multifamilies? Am I gonna house hack and rent rooms out to my friends? Like, what would that even look like? Now, I never executed on that dream in terms of investing in real estate to a couple years later, but even as, you know, maybe slightly hung over on that Saturday morning, walking through Victorian Village of these gorgeous, you know, brick houses in Columbus, Ohio, um, I, you know, the real estate dream was there. So question, first thing, college, Columbus, Ohio, for those listeners that have no idea, where did you go to school? Yeah, so I went to school, and hopefully this doesn't sound too pretentious, but if you guys watch Monday Night Football, I went to the Ohio State University. So the student housing population is huge, and it is very cheap to live off campus, but essentially like 10 blocks in either direction off campus is all college housing. So you can imagine from an investment perspective, as long as you get the right return, the university is pretty much always going to be there because the city is essentially built up around it. So give it 
you know, pretty solid basis for investors. And what did you go to school for again? Went to school for finance. What made you pick Ohio State? Yeah, so um, I had a mentor when I worked at Citizens Bank. So she ended up checking it out. Um, my family didn't have a ton of money, right? So I spent my first two years at the Community College of Rhode Island. My dad always emphasized for me that it doesn't matter where you start, it matters how you finish, right? So I, I did pretty well in high school, but um, my mom, since I was, since I was young, took one class at a time, night classes, to finish up her nursing degree. So my parents came to me as I graduated high school and said, hey, listen, we'll help you out. You gotta stay local. We'll pay for your first two years. It's gotta be at the Community College of Rhode Island, right? So I spent two years there and it was a grind. Honestly, my first year of college, I didn't do that well. I corrected it my sophomore year and picked up a mentor um, in my manager at Citizens Bank where I'd landed an internship. Um, her family was uh, much more fortunate and she said, hey, listen, I'm flying my daughter around to all these schools. You should check out this business school. And I said, I can't afford to fly out there. She said, let's make it a business trip. We worked with a team out in Cleveland, Ohio. So we went out to meet with them. And I gotta be honest, like I checked out the business school and that was cool. But uh, I'm a huge sports fan, right? So as soon as I walked into the Horseshoe, which is a football stadium, I was like, listen, I, I got to sign here. So um, I ended up filling out an application. And I think not based on my grades, but maybe because of geographic diversity, they, they accepted me to go to college there or they offered me a spot to go to college there. That's awesome. So what would you compare Ohio State to around here? Boston College? Nothing. It's not. I don't. I. I mean. I. I don't know. It's not really comparable. So one of the big things that I learned out there is, you know, Rhode Island. We have this like small mentality of we're scared of big things, but going to school at I think it's still the largest school in the country. I think the undergrad population is fifty thousand students, right? Wow. So it's huge. That's like half the population of Rhode Island, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. No, seriously though. Um, I learned quickly on campus there was uh, some type of orientation where they talked about how you could make the campus very small. So you meet a couple people in classes, you meet a couple people doing extracurricular activities, and very quickly that campus becomes small and you essentially develop your network. I was going to say, Jimmy's networking before he's doing real estate. Yeah, so uh, honestly I don't think that I exercised that as greatly as I could have when I was on campus, but... I've taken that experience and leveraged it, leveraged it in the Rhode Island real estate market, and I think that I've grown a pretty solid network from that experience of what I learned when I was out in Columbus, Ohio. So wrap up college, and I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. So in my last couple months of school, actually the last semester of school, I was fortunate to be on a team of students that managed $20 million for the Ohio State Endowment, picking stocks to earn the endowment in return. So as a part of that, they flew all the analysts on the stock portfolio to Wall Street. So I interviewed at places like Goldman Sachs, Barclays Capital, which was the former Lehman Brothers. Um, so keep in mind, I graduated college around the time of the financial collapse and a couple other boutique investment firms. I didn't have the chops to make it on Wall Street, so I came home and I ended up landing a job at Citizens Bank, followed up six months later by Fidelity Investments. Now the big thing here is, I always, like the thought in the back of my head, I always wanted to make it to Wall Street to make a ton of money to invest in real estate. Now let's pause here. When you say that, most people that work at Wall Street don't usually make a ton of money, right? The people that actually work at Wall Street. I mean, they make good money for New York City, but they're not making like big money. Right, so the idea was hopefully make 
big money five, ten years down the road, eat ramen in the meantime, and then figure it out as we go. But uh, yeah, just it that wasn't going to be a part of my story, even though I, I had the opportunity, but I wasn't able to close it coming fresh out of college. So came back, worked for Fidelity for about a year, and I studied for the Chartered Financial Analyst exam. So the goal at this point was to pick stocks, still make a ton of money, and then eventually invest in real estate. I studied for six months. I worked 50 hours a week, every night and weekend I'm studying for this exam. Finally, I take it six months later. A month after the exam, I get my results. I scored in the top 10% of the failures, and they invited me to take level one again. Now this is a three-level test, and at best, you're gonna pass those three levels in two years, but th those are some of the smartest financial minds in the industry, and I just, I wasn't there. Now, so this CFA, if you got that, what would it, what would it give you? Yeah, so that gives you a leg up to be, um, essentially be a stock picker for some of the top portfolio managers in the industry. So this is like table stakes to pick stocks for an investment services firm. Could you still work for Fidelity even if you never passed that exam? Yeah, absolutely. So there are many other roles, but you know, if I want to be a stock picker, this is like street cred of something that I need on top of probably an Ivy League degree in order to get that job. And you know, those jobs coming out of an Ivy League degree having a CFA, they're they're essentially guaranteed three hundred thousand a year right out of school. So this is where I'm thinking, okay, if I can lock in one of those jobs, I can, you know, easily bank a couple of years and then roll back and invest in real estate. So after failing, I quickly realized, hey, do I want to, you know, spend an extra few grand for another study packet, another twelve hundred for the test and whatever it may be, or do I want to invest in real estate? So I think you guys know where I wound up. Um, I ended up meeting a mentor who I still talk to to this day, and uh, he helped me buy my first four family over in Pawtucket. And I can remember, I didn't even want to see the building. The outside was absolutely hideous, and uh, I joke with Frank that it's still the ugliest building on Central Ave in Pawtucket, um, and Frank owns a building on Central Ave, so I always joke with him that great investors own buildings on Central Ave in Pawtucket, or at least great Rhode Island investors. We know a few more. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple others that are hopefully going to be on this podcast here shortly. Um, so that was my first house hack. And candidly, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I just, I got lucky. I had a good mentor. I ended up buying a four unit. I had no idea how rear four units were, right? So, you know, a couple years later, I understand how to house, house hack, and a four unit is probably the best way to do it. Um, but... You know, a year in, I actually got an offer from an investor to buy the building for 50% more than I had bought it for when I had only put in, you know, maybe an additional 10,000 in capital expenditure. So it would have led me to a large net gain. But I realized, hey, listen, you know, I came in with owner-occupied financing. What if I, you know, if I have this equity and investors willing to pay X amount, what if I went back to the bank, changed into investment paper where there was, you know, um, uh, a lower loan to value, and then could I house hack again? And I ended up eventually doing that. Question for you. When you first thought of this, what was your, were you originally saying we should buy a multi so that we can get uh, a cheap rent or maybe pay no rent at all and, and live there? Yeah, that was, so the game plan was always financial freedom, right? So I always thought of real estate as an avenue to achieve 
financial freedom. So not so much of like, hey, I'm going to be making an extra $1,000 a month, but how do I put myself in a financial position to have time freedom? So we have a friend that has a group called the Three Freedoms, right? So he talks about time freedom, location freedom, and financial freedom, financial freedom right? So my goal was always time freedom. So how do I invest in multifamily real estate? To free up my time to focus on you know entrepreneurial endeavors, right? So that was always that was always the goal. Of how do I build this portfolio to escape the rat race from working in the investment services industry, and then focus on entrepreneurial endeavors that I find fulfilling? And it, it took me a little bit, but you know now I I you know co-own a company that I get extremely excited about coming to work every day, and I, even though it's a grind, I really enjoy it. But you know. As I'm in this first house hack, trying to figure out what I want to do in real estate, now I start educating myself. I check out bigger pockets. I'm on YouTube. It's all trial by fire. I mean, that first year, I was there every single weekend with my dad. Every Saturday and Sunday, I'm waking up. I'm going to Liberty Lunch around the corner. I'm getting breakfast. Liberty Lunch is a real like hole-in-the-wall diner, guys, that I actually grabbed lunch at today. It's still my spot. But, I mean, like wake up 7 a.m., eat breakfast, and just work on the house all day. So I think, you know, that's something that people overlook, but putting in the time and just, you know, appreciating the process. What are you talking about? You always told me Saturdays are for the boys. Yeah, yeah, Saturdays, yeah. So uh, now Saturdays are for the boys. But in the beginning, I mean, I wrote off the entire first year. I I put a roof on the three-car garage behind it. I had no idea how to do these things, but, you know, I, I called my dad. We put in the time. And, uh, you know, my tenants were grateful watching the process, too. They respected me more as a building owner because they saw how hard I worked on the property. So when you went for this refi, obviously you have a lot of equity. Now, some of that is definitely sweat equity. Yeah. But you also were in the right part of the market, too. Yeah. Yep. So I, I had so I graduated college in 2010. I bought my first multifamily in November of 2012. So... I had no idea how good the market was then. I mean, I picked up a four family in Pawtucket, Rhode Island for $140,000. And it's probably worth double that now based on the stage of the cycle that we're in. And, you know, sometimes you have to be lucky to be good. And I was just really fortunate to find a great mentor that helped set me up. And then I learned the game. But it took a little bit of time. So after buying that first multifamily... I said, okay, what else can I do now? I don't have, so I'm thinking like, hey, I don't have equity in this building. It's gonna take me a 25% down payment in order to get into that next one. I've got 70 Gs in college loans and I'm trying to like figure out where I wanna go. So I said, hey, why don't I take, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month and try to wholesale? So I started looking at lists. I mailed a, a high equity multifamily list in the Pawtucket and Attleboro area. I mailed a probate list in Cranston, which I had absolutely no luck on. And then I mailed an inherited list. I partnered with a with one of my buddies who's a phenomenal wholesale now, who's built a tremendous business. And uh, very quickly, I realized the inherited list wasn't for me. I'd never gotten so many death threats in my life, and I just wasn't ready for that. Um, but what I quickly realized is that I was good at talking to tired landlords, right? So those are three different lists, but I'm quickly starting to hone in on you know, who are the folks that, I'm, that I enjoy talking to? At some point, you'll have to uh, tell me who your partner was at the time because I get mailers all the time and I, sometimes I keep some of them. I might even have... Yeah, so you might, you might have home. some of my mailers. So here's a crazy thing. Um, I actually met with uh, 
one of my buddies who owns another property management company locally. And uh, how I met him was a handwritten mailer. I would legitimately sit down and I would write 10 to 20 letters a day by hand. That's how bad I wanted it. That's how bad I wanted to grow my real estate investing. You, you mean even if you don't have money, you can still work hard and do well on this, right? Yeah. I mean, I was legitimately ripping. You guys know those yellow line pages from the notebooks that you can get at the dollar store? I am, I am writing on a lined legal pad from the dollar store in green ink with my pen. And I'm sitting there writing every single night. Licking and stuff in the envelopes by myself. That's awesome. That's dedication. In, in my first house hack. And like, I, same thing. I don't, I don't say this to impress you, but impress on you that if you're willing to put in the work, you can make it happen. And, you know, three months in, the most amazing thing happened. I got a phone call. And they talk about how when you have your first wholesale deal, you know it. And as soon as I got on the phone with this gentleman from Attleboro, it was a three-family on Mechanic Street in Attleboro, I knew it was a deal. I put it on a contract that weekend, and I wholesaled my first property for a $19,000 profit. Frank's high-fiving me in the background. So it's possible. you got to put in the work. So I continue to wholesale. I build a website. And quickly, I'm starting to realize, like, hey, this probably isn't going to work out the way that I want it to. I don't think that I can generate the steady income in order to make this, a, you know, crazy viable to support my family. Well, with wholesaling, if you don't have time and if you don't have money, it is one way to work and make money. Yeah. But it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I mean, if you're a great closer, you can definitely make it happen. But you got to think, like... Back at that time, I'm like 24, 25 years old. I'm a financial analyst. I'm extremely introverted. I can't really talk to people. I mean, at this point, I'm going to Toastmasters. I'm trying to I'm trying to develop how to speak to people because normally I'm in a cube all day, buried in an Excel spreadsheet, and it's just it's tough, right? So that taught me how to close. I just got in front of people. I got out to buildings and tried to make it happen. I'm glad that you're not just making excuses. You know, some people. Like, you're doing the Toastmasters. You're working at it. Other people, when they tell me they're introverted, that just tells me, I'm not really going to do much. Yeah. So, you you got to realize, so, anything that could, you know, be a detriment to you, I wouldn't say to completely ignore it and just focus on your strengths like some of these gurus tell you to do. Um, some of these things, you know, it's, a, it's you just got to try to work on it. It may you may never be the best at it, but there's always an opportunity to improve. So I realized like, hey, maybe I won't ever be a Tony Robbins on stage, but I can definitely get a hell of a lot better than I am right now. So let me go out and put in the work, meet at Toastmasters, you know, two times a month, and really try to develop my chops as a speaker and learn how to speak to people more articulately. Well, it's like I don't ever plan on having uh, six-pack abs and being Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I can still keep in shape. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, start wholesaling. Close a couple wholesale deals. Find a private money lender. Start in 2015. I launch a property management company with a partner. I... Secretly. Secretly. Yeah, Frank says secretly because I kept that one under wraps for a little bit. I wanted... I, you know... I want to develop a killer product, which I, I think we have. I, I think that you know we're, we're starting to become a pretty serious player here. But in the beginning, it was it was a slow build because we were focused on too many things. So January 2015, I close on my second house hack. 
February, I closed on my first flip. March, I closed on my second flip. February in 2015, we also launched a property management company. April, April and May, I'm scratching my head, you know, and I because I recognize I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. Like, I sat down with my my partner, who I own the property management business with, and who I purchased the flips with, and I said, Hey, listen, like, what are we gonna focus on? We're we gonna figure out what we're really good at. And I went back to what I figured out from wholesaling. I figured out that we're really good at talking to tired landlords. So I said, hey, you know, let's close out these two flips, see what we can make for money, and really start to get focused on this property management business. When do you think you might have uh, went to the real estate group? So I started the RIA sometime in 2014, maybe late 2013, 2014. I think it was roughly a year into owning my first rental property. Gotcha. So we have Jimmy, who nobody really knows yet, just coming. Learning a few things, saying hi, shaking hands, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, the shy guy is sitting in the back room, maybe meeting one person a month and then scooting out at the end of the meeting. So at this point, I was I was honestly nervous to stay towards the end and network. But now, that's the best part of the meeting, to meet other real estate investors. So maybe I missed it. When uh, did you do house hack number two? Yeah, so house hack number two happened in January 2015. So end of 2012, I bought my first one, November 2012. And then my second house hack I purchased in January 2015. Um, from there, a couple years later, um, my son was born. And Hold on. Let's pause. Yep. The second house hack, what made it different? Was it the same area? What, talk yeah, about the differences. So, so this, this is a good question. So the second house hack required a pretty extensive rehab. So this was cool. It's a, in Rhode Island, if you were wealthy back in the day, you would build a house on the main road to show off your wealth. It also puts you closer to town, so closer to supplies, right? So this house that I bought is on a main road close to a historic district in Lincoln, Rhode Island. And the third floor had eight bedrooms. They, they referred to them as the servants' quarters, and they even had the original racks in the rooms that they used to, to dry their clothes. So going through this property, there were three one-bedroom units. And then on the second floor on one of the sides, the building is exactly the same if you split it down the middle. On the right-hand side on the second floor was gutted to the sheetrock. And the third floor, they had removed those servants' quarters. It was gutted to the studs. And all I could see was opportunity. So now I got to try and figure out how to, you know, get underwritten for a two or three K loan. So even though the rehab was $50,000, I went with a streamlined 203K. So a streamlined 203K product they will fund a rehab up to $35,000. Above $35,000, the 203 product becomes incrementally more difficult because of added required inspections and multiple different draws. So on a streamline, you get a draw at the beginning of the project and you get a draw at the end of the project. So candidly, a lot of contractors aren't willing to work with 203K investors. So if you find one, that is, that is absolute gold. So fortunately, I had a family friend who's a phenomenal carpenter and was a general contractor on the project. And, you know, he put a tremendous amount of faith in me and, and we were able to make it roll. Um, the remaining rehab money, I actually pulled a little bit of my, I pulled roughly $15,000 out of my first house hack in order to fund the remainder of that project. So I created a second and third floor townhouse style unit, um, which we now rent for a very high rate. So it was a great owner's unit when I lived there, and now it's a great cash flowing unit now that I've moved out. 
So basically, you moved up in quality of house. Yep. You moved up in quality of neighborhood. Yes. Yeah, so so those are the big things. So a lot of people say, well, what happens if you get into that first house hack and you want to do a second one, but you're stuck in the FHA financing, maybe you can't pull the money out. Well, the good news is, is that you're allowed to have two FHA loans, right? So I think you just don't, I'm not a mortgage broker, but I'm fairly confident that as long as you've held that first property for a year, you can qualify for a second FHA loan. Now, the key here is that you have to make it look like an upgrade. So whether you can move to a larger unit, you can upgrade the neighborhood, or just get into a better building. Um, it's very simply a letter of explanation. From my experience, you write a letter of explanation to your mortgage broker, broker saying like, hey, my wife doesn't like the size of the closets in this one, but the size of the closets in the other ones are better. And there's your letter of ex explanation. It can be very simple as like one has a backyard and one doesn't. So. If you're able to leverage the house hacking strategy, it's honestly changed my life to put myself in a financial position that I didn't think was possible this early on. Um, so if anybody's interested in that strategy, I'd love to have you reach out. We can coach you up on it. I think it's an incredibly valuable strategy to leverage and it gets away from the traditional, the traditional idea that the best way to get started in real estate is through wholesaling. I think the single best way to get started in real estate investing is house hacking hands down. I would agree. So um, wholesaling is great. It's a little bit overplayed. Stay focused on house hacking. And I think that you'll have more long run success in real estate. What's nice about house hacking is that you can buy a multi, you can become a little bit of a small landlord. Yeah. You can learn a lot of the ropes and uh, it's okay if you make one or two small mistakes because you can build from there and you gain a lot of experience. Yeah. You know, and but that's if you want to do the field where you're a, an owner of a bunch of multis. Some people don't want to be an owner of a bunch of multis. Right. So one of the biggest pieces of advice I'll, I'll give, you know, folks getting started out who may be thinking about house hacking. I think one of the biggest places that people get stuck is that they think that they have to buy a foreclosure. But I would tell you, you know, stay away from foreclosures. You're going to get stuck there. If you can find a multifamily that has tenants in there, maybe they're not the greatest tenants, maybe it's not the greatest building, but something that you can upgrade steadily over time, that is, those or those are the best types of buildings to house hack. Something that's distressed, but functioning. So in three years, you have two four unit multis. Yep. You haven't paid any mortgage yourself because the tenants are paying the mortgage. No, it's crazy. I've, so I've never paid a mortgage. Even the be in the beginning, I bought that first four family and I had two tenants and one I had to boot because they were in the unit that I wanted to live in. But legitimately, I, I've, never, I've never paid a mortgage. And here's a mortgage hack, guys. If you are going to buy a multifamily property, buy it during the first week of the month. There's a reason for this. This if, is experienced high-end stuff. Yes. So I got lucky because I bought mine on the 12th of the month the first time, right? So I bought my my, pro my first property on the 12th of November, and that bumped my first mortgage payment out till January 1st of 2013. Buy it on the 12th of November. The seller has to cut you a check for the rents collected for that month, even if they didn't collect them. It's their responsibility, if the first has elapsed, to cut you a check for the rents. So I'm sitting in closing, and yes, I did have to bring a down payment, but I got a check for roughly $1,000 for the tenants that lived in the building. And oh, by the way, my first mortgage payment isn't for you know 45 days out. 
So if you can buy a property in that first week of the month, it bumps your mortgage payment out. Now, I know there's probably some folks out there saying, well, doesn't you know your uh, your the money that you have to bring to closing go up because of interest? Yeah, a little bit. But guess what? It gives you more time to kind of stabilize that building. So if you have a bit of a touch and go scenario on that building and you can get your cash flow up before that first mortgage payment, this buys you a little bit more time. Especially if you're buying that first building. Every day is crucial the more time you have. Yeah, absolutely. So mortgage hack one or mortgage hacking 101, buy a, a multifamily building during the first week of the month. So you get close to two months of carry and you get a check cut to you at closing. So we're, th- we're three years in. So that's from 2012 to 2015. So from 2015 to 2018, your growth just like shoots up. Not necessarily on owning, but just on knowledge experience with properties. Yeah, you say more? yeah hugely so. So I'm, I'm still at Fidelity, but I got, a, I got a great partner in the property management business. And you know we, we got to a point where we just got crazy focused on the business. We started gaining some street cred with some local investors and it really blew up from there. So um, we've actually been able to triple the size of our business from a gross income perspective the past three years. So that's been really exciting for us. And it gave me an opportunity uh, on my son's first birthday in, uh, on July 28th of 2017 to quit my corporate job. So you darn corporate dropout. You. Yeah, yeah, no. So, um, you know, you, you hear a lot of people that uh, will give you excuses on, on why they can't make it happen. And I would, I would tell them that it's, it's absolute BS, right? Because over the course of time, running a property management business, having a full-time job, I got married. That's a huge you know, financial swing right there. Had my first child, was still able to grow the business, had a bunch of other stuff going on. You know, anything is possible if you guys put your mind to it. And I, I live by that mantra every single day. But you're going to throw these excuses by the wayside. And you're just going to stay focused, dig in, spend those early morning and late nights chasing what you really want to do. There you go. So basically, that's a, so that's a great segue. I didn't do that intentionally, but that's a pretty good segue in, into my book recommendation. So um, I'm coming off of the 10X Growth Conference here from about a week and a half ago. And honestly, you know, I think that this book recommendation goes really well with my story in the sense of it got to a point where I just got crazy focused and, and set huge goals. And I was able to take that mentality from a book that I read by Grant Cardone called The 10X Rule. So any idea that you have, multiply it by 10. Chase something bigger because it's going to give you the larger results that you really desire. If there's something that you want, multiply your effort by 10X. And you're going to be able to achieve that. But really stay focused and dig in and grind. So my book recommendation for this podcast would be The 10X Rule by Grant Cardone. It's a really quick read. And I think it's just really going to help you change your mindset and mentality of how you approach things. I'm laughing about that for a few reasons. Number one, I just started reading the book. I am, I'm only in the first, I'm only finished the first chapter. Yep. But uh, I've just started reading the book myself, number one. And number two, I'm always pushing Jimmy on making this, the cash flow king, so much better. And I'm just thinking, am I hitting him with 10x? We've got to expand his goals. So I think, uh, so I have my goals binder in front of us as we're recording this. So Frank can check in on my goals to make sure that they're 10x. But honestly, I think Frank, if you were to write a book, it'd probably be called 100x because uh, he's got hours in the day that I've never seen. But, I, you know, if you can pick up that 10x mindset, it's, it's really going to set your levels apart from your competition. 
if you're awake at 12 30 in the morning you give me a call you know <laughs> I'm, I'm in bed i'm in bed by then <laughs> yeah so i'm probably looking at some new property like a 96 unit <laughs> in tennessee or something whatever you know? definitely definitely so we hope you guys enjoyed this podcast we hope you enjoyed my story i'm really excited to share frank's story in a couple weeks um, one of the big things for us is that we never, we'll never seek to have advertisements on this podcast. We really want to focus on providing you guys value. So one of the big things that we ask on every podcast is if you enjoyed it, give us feedback, share the podcast, subscribe, leave a five-star review. This is going to help us reach more folks that we can help out because the name of the game for the Cashflow Kings is giving back. So in between podcasts, if you want to check us out, you can check out our website at www.cashflowkings.com or you can give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook under The Cashflow Kings. Here's to your success. The Cashflow Kings program is for basic entertainment purposes only. We do not give official legal, tax, or investment advice. Each person should consult their own advisors prior to making any financial decisions.